Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 22nd, 2009, and my guest is Ricardo Ribonado, Global Head of Market Risk and Quantitative Analysis at the Royal Bank of Scotland, visiting lecturer in mathematical finance at Oxford University and author of Plight of the Fortune Tellers. Our topic today is the insights of that book, Plight of the Fortune Tellers. And before we begin, Ricardo, I want to say that, let our listeners know, this is really Uh, an incredible book. It has many thoughtful things to say about risk and uncertainty and the challenges of making financial decisions in an uncertain world. But more than that, it was written just before the crisis and was remarkably prescient in the dangers that were inherent in the environment of both private and public decision makers. I learned an immense amount from this book. It really helped me to organize my thinking about what went wrong in the financial system And what I hope to do in this conversation is apply some of those lessons to what ended up being uh, uh, the reality of the warnings that you that you mention in the book. Thank you. That's that's very kind. Uh, I want to begin with a bit of recent history that you cover and talk about how banking changed in the 1990s and destroyed the 363 world. Uh, We mentioned the 363 world a long time ago for listeners, maybe uh, six months ago in a podcast with Arnold Kling, where we went back and looked at some of the history of finance and housing in the United States. But Ricardo, why don't you give us your take on 363 and what happened to the environment, competitive environment, regulatory environment for banking in the 1990s? Yes, the 1990s has been uh, in 1990s and the few years of the century up to, I think the, the big sea change was at the end of 2006. So between 1990s, there was the hiccup of 98, with LTCM, Russia default, but that a posteriori, after the fact, that proved to be purely contained to the financial sector. It did not spill over to the real economy, and within six to nine months, it was just a blip and it was forgotten. And uh, what happened, well, perhaps it, it is it's a bit difficult to trace a uh, coherent story throughout the whole period, but one aspect that was very important was that uh, the regulators who look after the the soundness of the banking system, of the international banking system, came to rely more and more on uh, on models, on quantitative models, and on the banking system being a forefront of risk management by making use of these quantitative models. If we step back a second from the technicalities, or actually if you do two steps back, uh, we recognize that uh, the underlying philosophy was a philosophy of faith in the self-regulating abilities and the self-regulating properties of a system which was managed by enlightened, self-interested managers and CEO. Very skilled, so, very mathematically skilled, enlightened folks too. Uh, yes. Well, I think there was a big there was a big divide. I think that. Uh, the quants, the mathematically skilled people, was, weren't necessarily so... They tended to come from a background, very often physics, 
very often mathematics, that was only peripherally touching. Very often they would have a smattering of a course in mathematical finance just before joining a bank, but the quants were not deep thinkers at all, and they were not people who had a deep knowledge of the banking systems. They were the tools, they were the, well, the tools is a bit unkind, but they were the, the instruments, if you want, of implementing the models that were supposed to guarantee that banks basically could not go bust and that sufficient capital would be set aside in order to safeguard against uh, extremely unlikely events. As we know now, that did not happen. And uh, uh, I try to explain in the book that, and the book, as you said, was written well before these events. And I was saying, uh, we really are not in a position of saying anything about extremely rare events because we are collecting data with different frequencies depending on you knowing market data you might collect daily or intraday data in the case of credit it might be monthly or quarterly data but at the end of the day you have a few hundred or a few thousands or in market risk data of relevant points that span a few years now this data gives you information about what has happened in these last few years. And even if you were blessed with the abundance of data that goes back decades or goes back to the 1950s or 1940s or whatever, uh, you have to make an enormous leap of faith to believe that these data are relevant to the present market conditions. Therefore, my contention was, you know, more and more these models were promising to tell you about events that should happen once every 100 years, once every 1,000 years, once every 4,000 years. And I'm not kidding you. The 99.975 percentile one-year horizon corresponds to an event that should not, on average, happen more frequently than once every 4,000 years. And I was simply saying, how do we know? How can we extract this information from the data that we have? Now, the quants might have said we have very sophisticated mathematical techniques like extreme value theory, copula theory to determine the codependency. And I was saying, that's great, but how do I know that the data I'm using in order to calibrate these models are sufficiently homogeneous, belong to the same patch of history, if you want, in order to be giving me information that is relevant today and not information that was relevant about three years ago, for instance, when the world was quiet. And this was one of the central points that I was trying to make in my book. And in a way, it it has been a characterizing feature of the evolution of a banking system from the point of view, from the regulatory aspect and from the impact of risk models into the practice of banking. I've made a similar point here, uh, talking about the Great Depression, uh, that it's rather remarkable that we don't really have a consensus in economics or economic history about the cause of the Depression, why we got out of it, and um, what its lessons are for today. Part of that reason is it's a one-time event. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to have a theory, or actually I should say it's very easy to have a theory of one time of, of a one-time event. It's hard to be confident that it applies, say, today. Um, and I think that's that is part of the problem, but it it should warn the yes. practitioner about it should yes. it should induce humility. I, su- I su- yes, no, suggest absolutely. rather than hubris. Uh, let's 
let's get a little more technical. Uh, one of the techniques that came to be popular in uh, in the banking system for assessing risk is, is value at risk. We've mentioned it on the show before, and I'd like to go into a little more depth on it. Uh, describe how it what it's the idea behind it and why it became so popular, not just with with bankers but with regulators as well. Yes, yes. Uh, without going into technical details, value at risk is a statistic, is a measure, is a measure of risk, and uh, it has some very nice features. First of all, it's expressed in units that anybody should understand is money. So a value at risk could be twenty million. If I say your value at risk one day, 95th percentile is 20 million. What does that mean? It means that I should exceed a loss of 20 million only five days out of 100 because I've chosen the 95th percentile. So basically uh, one in 20, one day in 20. So it gives an interesting piece of information. And when we are talking about something like the 95th, of the 99th percentile one day, we are talking of ev- about events that should occur or whose severity should be exceeded only once every 20 days or once every 100 days. This is statistically doable. Uh, it won't be a perfect measure, but certainly this is an interesting and important measure that gives you an idea of your day-to-day volatility from the trading activity when nothing much happens, nothing extraordinary happens. Your typical degree of uncertainty for a desk, for a trader, for a group of traders, or even for a bank as a whole. And that is all good and well, but again, we should look carefully at the time frames we are talking about. We are talking about, can I estimate the type of losses that... I will incur in a typical 20-day period or 100-day period. So business days, we are talking about uh, one month or a few months. Yes, I think that we can. But when it comes to, so VAR, value at risk, was supposed to be used in order to determine capital. And capital is there not to absorb losses that occur once every month, or once every few months, but it should be there in order to absorb losses that occur, um, well, once every hundreds of years. Any time. Any time. The, the goal yes, is no. to protect the yes. solvency of the institution. Indeed, indeed. And so the percentile will use 99, 10 days. That already begins to be a bit of a stretch. So 10-day uh, period, I have 10,000. I'm already getting... From the point of view of being confident that the data that I have in order to estimate this percentile is relevant to today, it's already quite a stretch. But even in this case, we are way, way, these losses are way, way too frequent. Therefore, the regulators, I think with a lot of common sense, slapped on a multiplier, multiplier of three. You do all these nice calculations. We don't ask you to calculate more remote percentiles. We don't ask you to calculate events which are more and more unlikely, and we just take a safety factor. The practice of safety factors has an illustrious pedigree. My background was in physics, and I know that my colleagues in engineering use all the calculations in order to, uh, that physicists, physicists, uh, uh, 
devise the formula, and they, they use the same formula to calculate the thickness of ropes, of steel ropes for lift uh, uh, elevators, and at the end of the day, they multiply by 10. Just and, in case. Uh, when, when I have... When people do the same calculations for the landing uh, gear of an aircraft, they multiply by 1.1. So there is always a safety factor, and, and I think it is a very sensible thing. So why was it sensible? Because it allowed the bank to calculate a statistical number which was somewhat meaningful, and actually quite meaningful in that. And then there was a multiplier that would translate this meaningful number into a safety adjusted number because that really is that's the goal of the regulator right the, the regulator and i will talk more about this but the regulator's goal is to prevent uh insolvency or um yes uh disaster because if it spreads that's the, the entire financial system could be at risk absolutely so, absolutely because a bank is not like any other industry but a bank has a systemic implication and there is asymmetry of information there are possibility of runs on the bank all the things that we know perfectly well from the story uh, from the history of the 1930s and unfortunately from the history of the last few years you're absolutely correct so i just want to focus the listeners i mean the, the idea is you know what nest egg do you have to keep this, this idea of a capital requirement is you, you want to put aside a, a buffer that's large enough Indeed. so that in the worst-case scenario, your, your firm's still going to survive. Exactly. Now, that's exactly. The, now here's the question. I, I want to ask a complicated question. Uh, you very eloquently point out in the book that there is an inherent tension between bondholders and stockholders in, in a bank yeah. and between regulators and owners. And I'm a little bit confused about regulators and owners about the systemic risk, but I want to start. Talk about how big that buffer would be in just if without regulation. You're a, you're a bank. You need to attract yes. – you call it economic capital. Uh, yes. How much economic capital should a firm in the absence of regulation keep to entice its investors, uh, both equity and bond, to be comfortable? So talk Indeed. about how – I mean it's in many – one of the things I learned from the book is that that number is not really uh, – a precise, uh, well-defined number, but talk about what some of the conflicts are. Yeah, that, that is an excellent question. And, and actually, as I said, uh, uh, having written this book before the crisis, there has been a lot of thinking after the crisis about the alignment of the interests, even of an enlightened uh, owner and of society. Let me explain a bit what, I, what I'm referring to here. First of all, economic capital, the idea is the amount of money, as you said, the nest egg, the amount of money that a bank would set aside in order to uh, remain solvent, to be in business, even if an extremely adverse event has occurred. Now, how severe, how big this adverse event? Now, this is interesting here because uh, the, the folklore came up with a number, and the number was a 99.975 percentile. So as I said, events that should happen not more frequently than once every 4,000 years. How was this magic number arrived at? And what could be well, safer than that? Because well, we haven't even exactly. had banks for 4,000 years. Exactly. Now. No, I, no, we have been so unlucky. We had something that was supposed to keep us safe for 4,000 years, and after three years, bang, we got hit. <laughs> uh, so that, that's really bad luck. Yeah, lifestyle. So how did that number come up? Well, it came up from a completely different angle, because... Actually, uh, 
what a bank wanted to say to bondholders, saying, look, I am a bank of a certain chosen rating. I am a double-A bank. Now, before the recent events, people could go up in, could go down in history, look at what has happened, and look at the fraction, at the frequency of how many double-A rated institutions went from being double-A to default within one year. And if you put in the pot all different currencies, uh, U.S. companies, European companies, British companies, all types, etc., you have probably, out of a population of several thousands, you have probably found a handful. And some clever person has said, well, if I, defy, if I divide this very small number, companies which defaulted in one year from AA down to default, over the total number of companies, I come up with uh, this one in 4,000, approximately. Aha, if I want to give to my bondholder the, the signal that I am a AA company, I should set aside enough capital in order to convince them that I will only go bust once every 4,000 years. I am aligning the capital that I am holding with the observed frequency of default of a AA uh, company in one year. That was the idea. What I was saying in the book is, that's a great idea. There is, there is a signaling device, is the way whereby I tell, apart from the regulators, apart from the rating agencies, look guys, I am AA, and therefore you should give me money sufficiently cheaply. You shouldn't be asking for a great spread because I am a AA. And in the case of a, of a bondholder, the only thing the bondholder is worried about is solvency. They just want to make Absolutely. sure they get they the, just the want principal the money their back. interest. They yeah. just want the money back. This is the tension that I refer to in the book. Why not going for AAA? Well, that is good, but the shareholders might not be too happy because the shareholders care about the return on capital. So in order to convince the bondholder that I am AAA, I would have to hold so much capital that the stockholders would say, hey, wait a second, my, my return is not, is not too great here. So there is this compromise between the shareholder and the bondholder. And for most banks, the, um, the equilibrium has been found around the AA level. And as you point out, the, the, the tension also is, is because the shareholder, caring about return on capital, because the shareholder has this upside Potential Indeed. that the bondholder can never enjoy. The bondholder is just getting this fixed promise. Indeed, exactly. So if you look from the, the bondholder, it's uh, uh, short a put. So the bondholder only loses money if things go extremely badly, if a company defaults. But when things go extremely well, he doesn't share in the upside. He just gets his money back with a coupon. It is different from the shareholder who has, in a way, likes volatility because the, uh, the shareholder is long a call on the assets of a firm. And therefore, this is part of the tension that I was referring to in the book. Now, an, interest, no, please. Go ahead. an interesting point here is that the recent crisis has made very, very clear that a shareholder can be perfectly enlightened, can be perfectly rational, but can be willing to accept a level of risk that a regulator might not like. I am putting myself back at the, let's say, June or July 2007. 
a shareholder might have looked at shareholder of one of the banks who got in trouble to different extents, let's pick anyone, it doesn't matter, looks at the portfolio and says, for me to incur very big losses on this portfolio, I would have to need a repeat basically of the 1930s. The probability of this is extremely low. If I try to insure myself against this probability at this point in time, June, July 2007, I would be locking in losses which are um, most likely I don't have to bear because in reality everything will come clean in the end. So from the point of view of a rational stockholder back in June, July 2007, it would have been perfectly acceptable to take that risk. This is the point where the regulators take a different view because they say, aha, in your calculus of risk and reward, you don't fully take into account the systemic impacts of your decisions. And therefore, I, the regulator, should be stepping in and saying, even if you like this risk, I'm afraid I won't allow you to take it. This is probably what they should have said, but everybody was lulled into a full sense of security by the once in 4,000 years economic capital that people said could be calculated. I, I want to come back to the uh, the systemic risk, but before I do, I want to emphasize, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that those, those investors and those institutions that were holding those portfolios had extremely high rates of return in the years preceding that that turning point is that you mentioned. So in the 03, yep. 04, yes. 05, 06, anybody who said, boy, you're taking a big risk, aren't you? Not only could they say, well, we're not going to have a Great Depression, so I'm not really taking as big yep. a risk, but I'm doing really well along the way. Not only, not only, but if someone had said, oh, let's pull the oars in, this is getting a bit out of hand, this is a bit crazy. Um, your competitors weren't doing the same. You would have been lagging behind. And it is extremely difficult, and this is one of the points that I make in this book, to convince the, uh, uh, the stockholder, the shareholder, look, I am being prudent, and these guys are going to end up in trouble in one, two, three, four years' time. You know, in a way, in 2006, there were plenty of signs that... Uh, money was too easy, liquidity was too abundant, risk premium had been compressed too much, asset prices were too high, and it was like, if you want, the fracture line of an earthquake. You, people knew that sooner or later, something was going to give somewhere. It was extremely difficult and well-nigh impossible to predict where, but it was a generalized consensus that it was not sustainable for a long period of time where and when the crack would occur, obviously, is completely different. I'm going back in 2006. And if someone steps out a bit too early, it is absolutely disastrous. Let's not forget that the irrational exuberance expression by Greenspan was uttered in 19, if I'm not wrong, I believe it's 1994 or 1996, so if someone had pulled out of the market at that point, he would have had to explain to the shareholders for five or six years what he was doing when everyone else was becoming rich. And there's both a there's a competitive uh, market issue. There's also almost, I think, in, in this world, a social issue. It's a small world, it, it, the, the investment banks. So you're going to events and parties where your neighbor is living yep. uh, very high and you're 
telling your shareholders uh, he's a fool, but he's doing very well. Yep, <laughs> and absolutely. you look you look like the fool, at least in the short run. Uh, but it does raise the question, which for me is one of the central questions of this um, of this catastrophe, which is the following. I've heard that story before. It's the uh, a version. There's different versions of it. One version is, you know, uh, if if the if that's the music that's playing, you get and you're there to dance. You got to dance to the music. So, yeah. you know, if everybody's investing in these mortgage-backed securities, sure, they're maybe they're not AAA or maybe they're not really. This tranche is not as reliable as it is claimed to be. Maybe the rating agencies are co-opted. But hey. It's the only game in town that's going wild. So I got to get in. I got to make sure that my clients, my staff, we're all sharing in this glorious uh, success. And yet, and yet, there were people who did not play along. Uh, there were, I think, quite a range across institutions of how much exposure they had. Why do you have any speculative thoughts? Bad choice of words. Do you have any thoughts <laughs> on why? institutions differed uh, by how much exposure they had. So, for example, you have Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. They go yep. out of business. You have, quote, more prudent, I think, institutions uh, like J.P. Morgan and Goldman and maybe that, that, that behave differently. Yep. Yes. Any thoughts on that? I think that there are, you know, it's extremely difficult to speculate about different institutions. This is, you know, these are just my guesses. I think that there are, there have been, the institutions who have been into this game uh, had been into this game for a very long time, so they made a lot of money and they had, and they were big in this area. They were the latecomers, and this fared worse than everyone else because they had not made the money before. They were seeing everybody at the party and they wanted to join the party, so they began building their portfolios basically when the party was about to be about to be over. Uh, there were some really smart guys, probably the Goldman Sachs and the J.P. Morgan of this of, of this world, but in a way, very, very few and far between. And I think that the different levels of inventory, if you want, simply reflected the different stages in which different institutions were in getting into this type of business. But again, now we know that this was the business that was going to crack, but it could have been in many, many other, it could have been emerging markets. Actually, emerging markets were extremely resilient. But there were so many, all the risk premium in all the risky assets were being compressed. I remember in, uh, um, I believe it was summer 2007, and there had been a wobble in emerging markets. And after the wobble, uh, a head trader of an emerging market desk said, this week there has been panic buying of emerging market paper, panic buying. So people have been out for a week. Oh, my God, I've, I've, I've lost my carry for a week. So there were many, many areas, and therefore it, was a, it would have been extremely difficult to say a priori exactly where it would have happened. There were signs, as I said, by, just by the sheer compression by risk premium, I mean the compensation that is paid by security for you to bear risk. And for the same amount of risk, less and less premium, less and less compensation was being paid. So if you wanted to make the same absolute return, you had to take more and more risk. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> some people have said that uh, one of the that this problem would never have happened uh, if the investment houses, especially in the United States, had never gone public. That part of this problem is a asymmetry of incentives facing 
uh, traders, say, and executives and uh, on the one hand and, and stockholders on the other. The claim is if, if they'd been playing with their own money, they never would have done this. What do you think of that ar- argument? Uh, again, after the fact that these people sound absolutely right, again, I am saying that before the fact, it was not necessarily, and I'm you know, putting my mind back to two th- late 2006, early 2007, uh, it, will, it would have been, a, from the point of view of a private firm, it would have been a reasonable risk to take. Now, a reasonable risk for a private institution needn't be a reasonable risk for a system. And this is where the regulator should step in, creating a level playing field. Because the only way, I mean, if I step off the bandwagon, I will be at a disadvantage with respect to the more reckless person or the more reckless institution who remains on for two or three more successful years. Well, yes, it might blow up in two, three years' time, but I will be dead by then anyhow. Because so people, in order because people will have withdrawn their funds from me would be the worry. Oh, right? absolutely, absolutely. I, I I have a vivid memory. An excellent uh, asset fund manager in the UK, I won't mention any name, stepped out of a dot-com bubble a tiny bit too early, and he got fired uh, three weeks before hmm. uh, uh, the bubble burst. You know, if a quarter you post a negative re- or not as positive a return, or actually if you go short the uh, underlier that you perceive as uh, uh, too expensive, you will be showing a negative return when everybody's getting rich. And a quarter, second quarter, third quarter, people say, sorry, um, I'm out. You might be smart, but... Uh, uh, it is extremely difficult to swim against the tide, and that is exactly where the regulator, when they perceive that there is a generalized asset bubble, should intervene to level the playing field and to say, okay, you will all be not prohibited but inhibited from taking this type of risk. But well, again, I'm not pointing fingers. We're I'm going not to come back to that. Yeah. Well, don't worry. We're going to come back to that. But, I, but two, that brings to mind uh, two questions. One is the amount of leverage that was at play here is part of the reason these gambles were so large, right? One of the puzzles I've always had when I first started understand, trying to understand this is, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you had a bad quarter, Bear Stearns. You had a bad year. But why did you take such a roll of the dice that these losses in the U.S. housing market destroyed your your legendary company? And the simple answer, and it's a simple answer, the simple answer is, well, because they were so leveraged, they had borrowed so much to finance that gamble that losing the gamble didn't just mean a bad quarter, it meant death. So that's point number one. Point, and you can comment on a sec. Point number two is when you talk about the, the people who swim against the tide, I think the standard argument you hear is, well, investor psychology is such that, you know, when things are going so well, no one's really worried about risk. And it raises the question of, you know, in, in the current environment, I suspect that the psychology is going to go the other way. Uh, aren't people going to get a little more prudent? Isn't one of the reasons they were so intolerant of prudence is they'd had such a long run, maybe unparalleled, uh, of, of yes. asset appreciation. And now we've learned a lesson and maybe these the, there will be more self-restraint. No, uh, it, it, to some extent, you're absolutely right, and I agree with you. And there has been a very good book by Akil Roth and Schiller, Animal Spirits, that highlighted the importance of sentiment 
and how people extrapolate into the future and have reversals of sentiment and how these affect both financial markets and the real economy. So from that point of view, you're absolutely right. It is that very, may be, very that may be the only thing I agree with in the book with Akerlof and Schiller, but let's keep going. <laughs> it's an interesting book. And uh, um, uh, but uh, what I was trying to say, is, uh, yes, um, it is extremely at the present moment. There is an enormous amount of uncertainty about whether we're going to get out of this. Uh, very deep reception very quickly, like a V or a double V. I have heard all kinds of letters to try and describe the shape of a getting out, but there is also a possibility, it is a nagging thought in the back of one's mind, especially the nagging thought in the back of a risk manager's mind, that things might not work out as plan A or plan B, and we might actually be at the beginning of a depression. And at the moment, there is, if you want, Every piece of information that arrives has the ability to shift the mood very, very dramatically because we are in a very uncertain and unstable state. Therefore, you know, a week ago, as we speak today, it is the 22nd of May, a week ago, well, it's all over. No, uh, the bad times are over. The uh, stock prices are going up all over the world. Emerging market spreads are coming down. Uh, we're going to be out very, very quickly. And then there have been a couple of pieces of news which are not really dramatic, uh, nothing, nothing substantial in the big, big picture. And all of a sudden, there is a much darker mood a week later, and there is nothing stopping me from thinking that next week uh, it might be different again. So are we becoming more cautious at the moment? I think we will become more fundamentally cautious if there is a more protracted period of uncertainty, instability, and decline. If we get out, in as, if plan A works beautifully and we get out with a V-shaped recovery, I would expect that risk aversion will disappear hmm. much more quickly than we think possible today. I totally agree. And, and that is good and bad. Yeah, that I is totally good, agree. obviously, <laughs> because it means that we get out of a recession very quickly, but the same uh, search for yield that has created the situation we are in, it means that it would not, if people begin to remortgage their properties yeah. in order to extract equity, in order to spend, and etc., uh, that is not uh, – instabilities will represent themselves. Yeah, well, that's a <clears throat> this related question of where that liquidity is going to come from. And, of course, that, that's a – we may talk about that uh, later. But before we get there, uh, talk about – tell us what Basel II was about and the idea of regulatory arbitrage. Uh, explain what – how, what that is, and then... Well, uh, regulatory arbitrage might be dead. Basel II was a very worthy enterprise, was trying to make the capital that a bank has to set aside more aligned with the risk that the bank takes. Basel I, there were some very formulaic rules, where well, every rule is formulaic, but they're very rigid rules and very, very simple rules that did not really reflect the risk taken by banks, um, or rather the capital that was set aside according to these rules, did not really reflect the risk taken by banks. To give you one simple example, there wasn't a great differentiation about the uh, creditworthiness of the bonds that you hold. So uh, governments or 
OECD, we're considered very, very, very safe. Bank of OECD countries were considered very safe. But then there was very little differentiation between lending to a double A company or lending to a corner shop. So if I asked to set aside the same amount of money for $1,000 lent to IBM or lent to the corner shop, well, I get a much bigger bank for the buck if I lend the same amount of money to the corner shop. So that is an element of risk misalignment, if you want, that Basel II was supposed, and to some, to a large extent, does uh, uh, remedy. So the idea is good. The idea is sound. Perhaps the techniques that have been used, I think there, is, there has been a overconfidence in how much we can quantify using statistical uh, techniques and f- what I call in the book frequentist techniques, exactly the risk of the different activities. If it had been left somewhere in between the Basel I approach, which was very broad brush, and the super and super quantitative approach of Basel II, we might have been in a better place. Yeah, it comes back to the hubris again, I think, of overestimating what we can know yeah. and, and measure. Yeah. Um, now, how did the ratings agencies uh, come into it? You talk about that in the book as well. How did they come into this regulatory uh, arbitrage issue with well, respect to Basel II? It's, uh, uh, clearly, I'm not privy exactly what happened inside, but the setup was not good. And the setup I'm referring to is uh, the role of the rating agencies with securitization. Securitization is a process whereby uh, in banks accumulate assets, accumulate mortgages or other type of assets, package them. So they, they accumulate diversified assets, if it is mortgages from different regions of the United States, for instance, if it is bonds uh, from different sectors of the economy, etc., etc., and by virtue of a diversification, they create a portfolio that is less risky than any individual component of the same rating of uh, uh, the portfolio itself. Then they present this portfolio to the rating agencies and, and they say, let's tranche this portfolio in different sections. The first section will bear the first risk, the, first, the risk of the first losses, and therefore will get a lot of return in, uh, in terms of spread. If things go and yeah. <laughs> all the way up to AAA. Now, the rating agencies were supposed to be the impartial observers of whether the mix of the securities had been done well and they were sufficiently diversified in order to um, provide enough diversification to bring the securities indeed to the AAA level, AA, single A, etc., etc. The problem here was that one is, if you want, human nature, and the second one is conflict of interest. And the conflict of interest is that the rating agencies only got paid if the securitization went through. And the rating agencies actively um, worked with the investment houses to structure the portfolio so that it would meet the criteria that the rating agencies had set for AAA, AA, and single A rating. So the analogy that I make here is a school teacher who sets a very, very tough test for the students but gives a question to the students the day before. Right. Because well, the test is very tough. 
but I've given you the question yesterday, and yeah, not surprisingly, you presented me a portfolio that exactly uh, uh, meets the re- specific requirements that I set out yesterday. Yeah, you get your AAA, and I get my Cs. But it's obviously not the best way that this system can be set up. But if I were to hire or interview a student from that school with a good grade, and I knew that that was how the school operated, I'd be a little skeptical. So everybody knew this about the ratings agencies. They all understood this. So I've never understood this claim that this was a yes. – everybody knew it was a conflict of interest. It wasn't a secret. That is, that is a good, that is a good uh, observation, but I had heard in those days is – there is a value of our franchise. Remember, it, it was the days, True. and we're only talking about 18 to 24 months ago, when the general mantra was the uh, uh, enlightened self-interest of market players was the best safeguard for the financial system. So the idea was, if the rating agencies debase the currency of their name by giving away the AAA for nothing, uh, they will lose credibility. It was the efficient market, self-regulating efficient market, and this was just one of the aspects. Well, I'm a little more, uh, maybe a lot more uh, favorable to that argument, and we will come back to it. Before we do, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, do you want to say anything about mark-to-market? And how it, what role it played in the crisis? Some people have suggested it's the whole problem. Some people have said it's irrelevant. Everybody knows what the value of these things are. It doesn't matter what, whether you put them down in the accounts or not. What, what are your thoughts on that? This is a very controversial. This is a very controversial topic. What I would say is, I don't think it is fair to point the finger to the mark-to-market. It's like saying, uh, if I didn't have a thermometer, this patient wouldn't have a fever. Uh, to me, that doesn't sound quite right. There has obviously been a dynamics of the mark-to-market forcing and influencing certain actions and disposal of that. So one of the one of the 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 nexus where the mark-to-market uh, uh, got things a bit into trouble was the fact that when securities got downgraded, certain institutions had to sell them, and this caused forced unwinding, or when there was unwinding of sieves, you remember the sieves of special 24 interest, months ago? Special et cetera, et cetera. interest vehicles. Special investment vehicles that everybody Sorry, was talking ones. about and nobody talks about today, etc., etc. So, in general, the mark-to-market is good when there is a willing buyer and a willing seller. And therefore, in these situations where the equilibrium between the willing buyer and the willing seller occurs, then there is a good information about the fundamental value of whatever is bought and sold. If for any reason there is an unbalanced wave of selling, or for that matter of buying, I might add, but let's stick with the selling at the moment, the mark-to-market ceases to have the same uh, information content that it normally does. Now, you might say, well, why is it that the buyers are no longer there? And it could be because all of a sudden, uh, liquidity becomes liquidity dis- uh, disappears. Balance sheet becomes extremely precious, and uh, uh, what are called technically the pseudo arbitrageurs, the, the the market agents who bring things back into towards fundamentals, don't have the firing power to deploy their assets, to deploy their money. Sorry, mm-hmm. and therefore there has been a. 
I can see the two sides of the argument. I mean, mark-to-market is not necessarily, it doesn't have any intrinsic value as truth unless the market is sufficiently liquid. Only in that situation, it is a good reflection of the intrinsic value of a security. If the market collapses, if the market becomes dysfunctional, then it becomes a rather meaningless number. On the other hand, that is the price for which you can get something off your balance sheet. So there is some information there still still there. So it is a controversial point, and I know that so much has been written. I don't think I can add much to the, to the discussion, but I think the central point that has motivated all of a sudden the suspicion of the loss of trust in the mark-to-market has been the fundamental disruption of a market, of a liquid market, to such an extent that one can no longer have the, the faith that the price reflects anything about fundamentals, or rather simply reflects the vagaries of today's supply and demand. But there's a, isn't there an interesting uh, interaction between the mark-to-market accounting and the, and the requirement and the regulatory capital uh, buffer? So, for example, if I'm holding an asset and you point that you discuss this very, very subtly in the book, very nicely. If I'm holding an asset that is, I'm going to hold it for, for say, five years. It's got a whole bunch of mortgages. They're going to come. They're going to be paying out over that time. Some of them are going to, of course, go into default. Some will be prepaid. There's interest rate yes. risk, etc. But many of these, I'm not. I'm not going to resell this. If in the meanwhile, the, there's an increase in the foreclosure rate and the default rate, the the market value of this goes down. I may not be in compliance with my capital requirements today, but over time I might be fine on a cash flow basis. I think that's the only part of the mark-to-market argument that I find somewhat compelling because of how it interacts with my capital buffer. So I'm forced to sell it. It's not a, I wouldn't sell it normally. It's not an economically destructive yeah. thing on my balance sheet, but for capital requirement regulatory purposes, it's become one. Is that yeah. true? Do I have that story right? Yeah, it's, I, think it's, I think there is a piece missing that uh, there is a choice for most securities. Well, once the security is created, you don't have a choice. But how you structure the, transa- the transaction gives you a choice whether to place it on what is so-called banking book or on the trading book. And there are pluses and minuses to both. Typically, the trading book attracts less capital, but it forces you to the discipline of a daily mark-to-market. So perhaps people have been placing into the trading book when the sky was blue, liquidity was high, and you could find prices almost for everything. A lot of things in the trading book whose prices then disappeared when the liquidity uh, uh, um, was withdrawn. But you always have the choice, or not always, but very often have a choice with a loan. Do you consider it a traded loan, in which case it is reasonable to put it on the trading book? Or do I consider it a loan that I'm going to hold to maturity, and therefore I'm going to keep it on my banking book, and I will get a different capital, which is higher at the beginning, but a different recognition of the value? Unless there is impairment, I can still recognize 100 and if it pays down 100 at the end, I'm fine and I don't have to recognize any losses. So uh, it's not so clear-cut. You have choices that you can make, and the choices that were made by preference in the year up to 2006-2007 was to place instruments in the trading book 
partly obviously because it attracted less capital and partly because the liquidity was so abundant that you could find prices for almost anything. And therefore, it was well justifiable in those blue sky days to put these assets there. Uh, <clears throat> we're, we're running a little short on time. I want to make sure we get to two topics. Uh, the first is is too big to fail, and the second is the systemic risk issue. Uh, I'm a big fan of enlightened self-interest, uh, maybe just self-interest, because I'm not always sure what that enlightened means. But uh, many of our guests here in the past have argued, and I'm sympathetic to the view, but it may not be true, have argued that that too, men, too much risk was taken because at the backstop, at the end of the day, uh, too big to fail or – U.S. central bank behavior would would eventually would, would bail out these bad decisions. So the argument would, goes like this: uh, In the United States, we have banks that are FDIC regulated, and we put a lot yes. of regulations on them as to what they can do with their money because we've guaranteed their deposits through the government. Then we have this so-called shadow banking system, the investment banks. Yep. They are not guaranteed at all. And yeah. yet it turned out, of course, that they kind of were. Not every one of them. There was an erratic decision. Lehman Brothers yeah, yep. died, and Bear Stearns yep. had to be sold at a discount. But Merrill Lynch got forced sold to Bank of America. AIG's been made whole all the way through, which I think has been a, a ghastly mistake, but that's life. But I'm more interested in the question, on a day-to-day basis, how much was there a socialization of losses and a private set of gains. We saw it in Fannie and Freddie here in the United States. That obviously turned out to be a catastrophic institutional structure that was implicit, turned out to be true. And unfortunately, it's turned out to be true for many investment banks that in in theory weren't guaranteed at all. So were they being rational in rolling the dice the way they did? Uh, there is an excellent question, and this is just speculation. What I'm, my answer Obviously. is going to be purely speculation. I, I see the logic of your argument, but if instead of thinking of an institution in the abstract, I think of the actual decision makers, I don't actually buy very much the rolling the dice because I'm too big to fail argument for the following reason. Perhaps the institution might survive, but as we have seen, the individuals don't. And it is the individuals and not the institution who made those choices. So it would be a strange person who has an incredible loyalty and affection for the institution and says, as long as the institution survives, I don't care if I die, and therefore I will roll the dice. Uh, the CEOs who made those choices are not faring very well today. Um, and therefore, from their point of view... I don't think that they were really banking, oh, well, if things go badly, I'll be bailed out. Well, perhaps my institution will be, but um, I will not. I'm, I'm a little surprised because you could argue it goes the other way, that a lot of traders made a great deal of money along the way. And although some CEOs were uh, both humiliated and financially destroyed, uh, stockholders of Bear Stearns being a, one example – Others uh, turned out fine. As you know, AIG is is still uh, thriving uh, in its own peculiar way. So, do you think there is um, there may be some truth to it? Well, uh, I don't know. This is again purely speculation. By the way, the CEO of AIG has announced his resignation today, and he has said, "I'm leaving the most horrible job in the world." <laughs> so, uh, it's been a great deal of fun. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. And uh, it, it also before the event. You cannot know whether you're going to be one of the survivors or one of the, or the ones that are going to 
not survive. So, uh, you know, if you look from the point of view of the institution, the argument looks okay. But if you look at the individual, um, I don't think that in the back of their mind, the too back to fail played too much of a role. You know that if you're rescued by the government, uh, you have lost control, you are, you're basically out in one way or another. Well, let's turn to systemic risk. Um, this argument that there is a um, – it's essentially in, in putting it in an economic framework. There's a negative externality. So when you take a risk that turns out to bankrupt your firm, you want to avoid that, but you're not as careful as you would be if you had to bear the social costs of the other firms yeah. that's, that are going to be called into question. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to, as I've done with many guests when we talk about this, I want to go back to March of 2008 – which for me is the turning point when the government decided that it was going to be actively – the U.S. government was actively involved in the financial system to a degree that was unimaginable yeah. uh, before that. So in March of 2008, there, a weekend came along where Bear Stearns informed the Fed and the, tr and the Treasury Department that they were not going to be able to meet their obligations on Monday morning. Yeah. And the the claim was that it was never made – I think one of, it's a real failure of democracy that the, the, the Fed and the Treasury Department – never explained the nature or urgency other than to say that it was urgent and it had to be done, that, there was, that the U.S. Yeah. government could not allow Bear Stearns to fail. Now, they, there's very as, – as Alan Meltzer pointed out on this show, there's been very few cases where the government let firms fail, which is part of the problem, I think, of incentives. But it, it, the claim was that if they had failed, uh, so much – would have cascaded down from that. Then, of course, a few months later in September, they let Lehman Brothers fail, and yep. people have debated about yep. whether that was a, a triggering moment for the real crisis. But we have some information now about what happened to Lehman Brothers' assets. They've gone through bankruptcy. If and the claim was in two thousand in March that if if Bear had been allowed to go through that experience, everything would have frozen up. Now it kind of froze up anyway. Uh, the, the whole system had a yeah. lot of problems, but do you believe that that was an, an unsustainable event that had Bear Stearns simply gone through the normal procedure of bankruptcy, that there would have been catastrophic consequences? And it's obviously speculative. We can't know. I believe it would. I why? believe it would simply by seeing what happened. Well, I think that uh, everybody, including the regulators, including the best minds in central banks, they were making it up as they were going along. And there were, I can't make any names, but I know senior people in central banks who were, there were, there were intense debates. There were intense debates uh, regarding, should we make the market work out, its own, work out its own problems, or should we intervene? And if you look at uh, records of different central bankers, central bankers were more averse to central banking intervention, or in your case, the Fed or the central bank. And, and people were experimenting. And when there was the rescue of Bear Stearns, some central banks said this was a mistake. And some, I have spoken with some individuals who at the time were opposing. And when Lehman came around, the people who were, let's say, uh, uh, more market-oriented had the upper hand. After seeing what happened, that's it, no more. So personally, I think that we would have had a repeat, or not a repeat, but a, a preview of Lehman's in March. Yeah, uh, hard to know, though. 
the, the reason I say that is, you know, J John Taylor, who is, and I'm going to come to his claim in a second, his other claim, but one of his claims is that the the uh, the spike in the spreads really occurred after the Lehman Brothers uh, Indeed. failure, not not concurrent with it, and it was really the TARP. Uh, bailout that really spiked interest rates and not the Lehman Brothers. I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I think that at that point, I think that there was real panic because no institution at that point was sure to be safe. Every single bank said it could be me next week. So when, when, when people saw that even a bank as illustrious as Lehman had not been rescued, there was, there was a sense of panic. And uh, ransom banks were beginning to happen all over the world. The slightest noise was prompting depositors to take their money out and depositors. And, and where do I go? I think, I think uh, that is a bit of an optimistic version. But again, uh, this is, you know, pure speculation. Yeah, this is, this that's is, a fascinating. Uh, counterfactual. It's a, yeah, it's yes. fascinating. And, it, and of course, we, uh, when you talk about regulators, being in the dark or unsure, you know, feeling their way, of course, they face their own unique set of asymmetric incentives, which is, I think, uh, in the course. United States, I think Ben Bernanke, as a authority on the Great Depression, was extremely eager not to have a Great Depression on his watch, maybe yeah. maybe too eager. Yeah. I, I want to close with, a, with a, a more European perspective. We've talked a lot about the United States. There is a tendency, and I'm guilty of this as well, and, and I'm worried I'm wrong, uh, so I want to get your thoughts. There's a tendency to blame much of the crisis on various U.S. policy decisions that inflated the housing bubble. And there's, there's plenty of blame to go around. There, the United States, beginning in the early 1990s, and you could even trace it back to the 1930s under Roosevelt, the United States has eagerly subsidized the uh, demand for housing and pushed up the price of housing, and particularly in the 1990s, did a bunch of policy uh, – policies that that inflated housing prices and made some of this possible. But a richer view makes the observation, and that story, you know, blames uh, tax policy, it blames Fannie and Freddie, it blames the Community Reinvestment Act. These are all U.S. Yeah. policies that, yeah. that had an effect on, that, on the price of housing. The question is whether that effect was large enough of a magnitude to Indeed. explain what's going on, and Indeed. that I think people have not made the case in a rigorous way yet. So here's the question, though. It, those of us who are who are sympathetic to that argument, often ignore the fact that there were housing, dramatic housing appreciations throughout Europe. There was uh, Spain, Spain. Had, had a big inflation of housing prices, Ireland, yes. uh, and around the world, South Africa and elsewhere. Australia. Australia. Yes. So I'm curious whether – now, one argument has been made, particularly by John Taylor, as I mentioned earlier, that these are all part of the same problem. It was an excess of liquidity searching for yield – being pumped out by the U.S. Central Bank and maybe other central bankers. Uh, do you think – do you have any thoughts on why yes. the worldwide housing appreciation occurred? In, it wasn't worldwide. It was in certain countries at certain times, and it wasn't nationwide. Even within the United States, for example, much yes, of the housing no, no, appreciation absolutely. was geographic. So, first of all, I think that when something of a magnitude of what we have been observing occurs – there is no single cause. It is a conflict. It, it is a perfect storm. You have five or six weather fronts arriving at the same point. We should not forget, for instance, the trade surpluses run by many countries like China, 
who prompts them to invest the funds in treasuries, depressing the yields and pumping liquidity into the system. And so into Fannie the, Mae, which is pumping it into housing in particular. Indeed. Uh, now you say, why, why housing? Well, if you look at the environment with pretty low, what I was talking about the risk premium before, pretty low return on lots and lots of assets. You know, I can take a lot of risk in emerging market in 2006 for a really paltry uh, yield pickup. Uh, for many investors, the obvious thing, solid as houses, was to invest in houses. And more and more, the instruments to create the leverage via mortgages and the buy-to-let in this country, and we know the ref- home equity refinancing in the state, etc., allowed the looking at housing not as a place to live, but a place to invest. And so there was one bubble that was created alongside with many other bubbles. This is the one that burst, probably because one of the magnitude, two, because of the complex and leverage of the instruments that became attached to the mortgage, uh, to the, uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities. Yeah. And... Uh, 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 I think no single, uh, yes, the government was, if you want to say, with hindsight, aiding and abetting the uh, uh, increase of investment into housing, etc. But I don't think that was the only cause. In many other countries, as you pointed out, there was exactly the same. And I think it was money chasing uh, uh, places to go. But why Ireland and Spain and not Italy and, and France? Or, did it, or is it I, just small? I think that... Uh, I would have, I, uh, to give a serious answer, one has to look at data. I would point to the availability of mortgages, but uh, again, um, it's difficult to tell. Yeah. It's difficult to tell without without looking at the data. My guest today has been Ricardo Ribonado, author of Plight of the Fortune Tellers, a book I strongly recommend. Ricardo, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.